Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Norse mythology is a rich and varied subject. It is far more than poetry and prose, extending further than the stories and sagas. For those living in the Scandinavian region at the time of the Vikings, it was a religion and a way of life, populated by gods that many of us recognise today. Yet, little of this is found in the archaeological record, and we speculate far more than we understand. My guest today on the Folklore Podcast will help to guide us through a grassroots introduction to this area. Noah Tetzner is the host of the History of Vikings podcast, a weekly show which focuses on these peoples and their gods. Hi Noah, and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. It's a great pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on. Um, We're going to talk today about your particular area of interest, which which centres around Norse mythology. Um, You have your own podcast on the subject, The History of Vikings, uh, which I hope everybody will go and listen to if they don't already after we've had a chat today. Um, So can you tell me a little bit about how you became interested in in this area and what research you do and, and why you are looking at this particular area? Yeah, um... Honestly, I I just absolutely love um, Viking history, and I've just always I've been fascinated with Norse mythology some time now because I think that um, you know it's not as mainstream as some of the other mythologies. Certainly, Greek mythology and everything that goes along with that. Uh, you know, um, the classical um, scholars of you know Plato and Aristotle. That's very mainstream, but I think that Norse mythology is something that's um, greatly overlooked. And when I discovered Norse mythology, I hadn't really been too familiar with it. I just became so enamored by the great stories, um, and that's what Norse mythology truly is: is it's a collection of excellent stories with uh, remarkable characters, and there's just so many. Um, great elements in there, timeless elements, um, you know, just the the primal concepts of um, uh, the forests and, and the wolves and, and everything else like that. And if you read those myths, you'll definitely experience that. But, you know, that's why I love Norse mythologies. I think that uh, it's a collection of uh, timeless stories. And uh, as you mentioned on my podcast, The History of Vikings, uh, I get a chance to talk to all sorts of uh, scholars who have uh, dedicated their lives to studying Norse mythology and uh, even people who have translated some of the uh, primary sources we have from the original Old Norse, that is the language of the Vikings. And uh, that's the kind of work I do uh, on my podcast, The History of Vikings. I have discussions with people. Uh, occasionally, more recently, I'm taking on uh, more work to write articles for various uh, Viking companies on sort of the Vikings and, and Norse myths. So, so yeah, that's what I do in regards to Norse mythology. Excellent. Uh, thinking about these these kinds of sources, I, I guess Norse mythology is enjoyed a little bit of a resurgence lately through secondary sources, I suppose, particularly since Neil Gaiman um, published his book, Norse Mythologies, um, relatively recently. But going back to the beginning, what are we looking at when we're looking at primary sources for, for the Norse myths? Where are these coming from? 
So, you know, there's really two key sources that we have for Norse mythology, and they are the prose, the prose Edda and the poetic Edda. Uh, now, the prose Edda was written by a um, 13th century Icelandic historian named Snorri Sturluson, and he was a Christian, and what he did is he took... Uh, what he did is he took all of the myths uh, of the people of Iceland, Norse mythology, obviously, and he composed them into his prose Edda. And it's interesting because oftentimes when uh, throughout medieval history things are um, written down by a medieval Christian, they tend to have a certain bias towards them. And the bias that we see uh, in Snorri's prose Edda is very interesting. Um, we're very fortunate to have the prose Edda because it is the greatest of the two sources that we have for Norse mythology. Um, but uh, apart from describing the myths and the actual meat of the book, uh, in the prologue, he likens the gods Thor, Odin, and Loki to actually being uh, descendants of the ancient city Troy. And he says that um, um, Thor, Odin, and Loki, um, after they fled Troy and uh, moved north, uh, they were, you know, revered and, and worshipped as gods. Um, and, you, you know, of course, people uh, forgot who the true god was. And, and that's kind of how he... Um, he incorporates his Christian bias into his perception of Norse mythology. Uh, but then the other source, the Poetic Edda, um, is a compilation of poems, uh, and we don't know who it was written by. They were all just kind of um, a, a collection of poems um, composed by an anonymous author. And um, although the Poetic Edda doesn't go as in-depth as the Prose Edda in terms of the stories of the myths, uh, it provides a lot of what are called kinnings, and what a kinning is is it's um, a form of poetry that hints at something. So uh, I'm trying to think of a good example. So um, if you just take an object like, um, I don't know, a sword or something like that, um, instead of directly calling it a sword, they might describe it as being some sort of pole or, or stick with, you know, stones attached to it or just something weird like that. So there's a lot of kinnings, but... Um, again, getting back to the prose Edda, uh, something I forgot to mention, uh, one thing interesting that, that Snorri did when he uh, composed his prose Edda is, um, although he obviously was a Christian and had some bias against the, the pagan uh, Vikings in, in paganism, uh, he really had a very tolerant attitude for a medieval Christian. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to establish a sort of canon, if you will, for the Norse myths. Uh, at that time, uh, in the 13th century, uh, Christianity had a very well-established canon for the most part. Uh, they had the Bible, obviously, and the various councils that um, you know voted on which manuscripts would be used to compose the Christian Bible. Um, so that's what Snorri did, and as I said, uh, his prose edda is the greatest of the two sources but then the other source is the poetic edda and then of course we have a bunch of sort of minor pieces of evidence we have you know archaeological finds of picture stones where there's um sort of illustrations and carvings depicting various scenes and some of the the sagas and, and the norse myths and we also have uh, little amulets of thor uh, that people would wear around their neck um 
Mjolnir pendants, then that's the name of Thor's hammer, similar to how Christians today might express their Christianity by wearing a cross necklace around their neck. Um, so that's basically where we get the Norse myths from, those two sources combined with little hints uh, of archaeological evidence. And I guess there's a theme here, isn't there, that, that we see in other areas of folklore as well, is this kind of merging over time of of the older stories and the older beliefs with this this Christianization process, and it's a case of you know adoption in some areas um, mm. and, and removal in others, perhaps. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right, and and you know that's that's a whole other um, topic as well. Is when Christianity, uh, you know, spread throughout Europe, Scandinavia was you know, since it being so far north, uh, was one of the last places to go, one of the last places to convert. And it's kind of a an interesting concept to explore whether uh, the pagans of, of northern Europe would have been so quick as to convert to Christianity. Uh, but I think that when talking about the conversion of, of the pagan peoples up there, it's important to realize, like, just as you said, they wouldn't have been uh, full-fledged Christians, if you will. They would have incorporated Christianity, or I should say, they would have incorporated elements of Christianity uh, with their the pagan gods that they worshipped. And they would have seen Jesus more similarly um, to their, you know, polytheistic worldview. Absolutely. So if we think about this this landscape that uh, the the characters within the Norse myths are populating can you do a little bit of to describe to us that landscape and and the characters that we find within them Yeah absolutely so similar to some other uh mythologies or or folklore um the mythic landscape of Norse mythology is comprised of a great tree. Uh, some might say a tree of life, but in Norse mythology, the mythic landscape is uh, comprised of this great ash tree called Yggdrasil. And uh, within the roots and branches of the world tree Yggdrasil are the nine different realms in which all creatures live. Um, so directly in the middle of the ash tree is our world, Midgard, uh, and above that is Asgard, the realm of the gods, and uh, down below at the roots of the tree is Hel, the underworld, and then of course um, you have the realm of the dwarves, Svartalheim, uh, the realm of the uh, elves, um, Elfheim, and then you have Muspeltheim, which is the realm of fire, and Niflheim, uh, which is sort of this ice-filled chasm, um, so, yeah, it's really interesting. This giant tree makes up the entire mythic landscape. And how that tree is conceptualized is very interesting because we hear that um, Odin, uh, the highest of all the gods, the father of Thor, um, rides his eight-legged horse Sleipnir across its its roots and branches. And then we also hear um, that um, Hadron the goat, um, this goat that lives atop of Valhalla, um, which is Odin's Odin's hall in Asgard, um, eats the leaves of um, Yggdrasil. And then there's this squirrel called Ratatosk that um, runs along the branches and, and causes all sorts of mischief. But um, yeah, that's the mythic landscape, is uh, the world tree Yggdrasil. So we have the gods above, and we have the humans in the middle, if you like, of this tree. Yeah. 
So how are these two interacting with each other? Um, do the gods have a particular agenda for the humans, for example? Uh, is there a, a struggle for power between these different characters? That's a really interesting question. One thing that's really interesting about Norse mythology, um, and I suppose a good um, comparison would be to Greek mythology, which is quite the opposite. Uh, the Norse gods don't seem too particularly interested in humans in Norse mythology, in that um, other than Odin, the highest of all the gods, um, none of them really ever uh, make appearances down here on Earth. None of them ever you know, transcend or come down uh, to be with humans. Uh, certainly there's interactions between the humans and the gods. We see those all the time in the sagas, but uh, it's mainly just Odin. Um, so the gods don't seem too particularly interested in humans. Um, what they do seem interested in is kind of living this um, aristocratic life uh, in their great halls in Asgard. Um, you know, basically the theme of every Norse myth is there's some sort of dispute uh, which, you know, needs to be settled. Uh, obviously there's great disputes uh, like the, the um, you know, the end times Ragnarok where there's this massive battle, but then there's, you know, um, less, less important disputes, you know, where Thor goes fishing for the Midgard serpent and, um, you know, Loki ends up cutting uh, Thor's wife. I believe her name is Sif. Uh, he cuts her hair. Um, so there's all sorts of kind of um, disputes going on. And at the center of all these disputes is uh, Loki, who is um, oftentimes portrayed as being evil, but I think that would be a bit of a stretch to call Loki evil. I think um, he'd be better described as mischievous, uh, cunning, um, sort of a trickster, if you will. Um, so that being said, as far as power struggles, I don't know if it would be fair to look at the Norse myths as a struggle between good and evil, because the the, the characters that we naturally like to classify as evil uh, aren't really evil at all. They're more of just mischievous and, and annoying. Uh, that and the characters that we'd like to naturally consider good, you know, Thor and, and Odin, uh, aren't really good either. In fact, um, you know, Odin, um, his hall, Valhalla, a lot of people who study Vikings are already going to know this, but uh, whenever someone dies in battle, uh, a Valkyrie comes and, and swoops down and brings the, the dead warrior to train in Valhalla uh, for the end day to fight with Odin at, at Ragnarok. So so Odin kind of likes it when humans die because um, – for rather selfish reason, reasons, he's just taking them and training them in his his hall to, you know, fight for his um, predestined death uh, at Ragnarok. So, all that being said, I think that probably, and this isn't perfect either, but I think the best way of describing the power struggle in Norse mythology is probably between order and chaos. Um, in that uh, there's not really any characters that are sort of the definition of order. There's lots of chaos throughout Norse myth. Uh, but in, at the end of all the myths, um, the chaotic dispute, if you will, always ends up uh, coming back to order. And, and whoever initiated that, uh, Loki, is, is usually punished in, in some way. So the humans and the gods are, are perhaps quite separate in, in some respects. So how, how are humans 
worshipping or interacting with the god forms in Norse myth? That's a really interesting question, and um, it's it's something that we really don't have much evidence for. I mean, the Viking Age is one of those eras in history where we just don't have enough evidence and archaeological finds and uh, mainly text um, and manuscripts as we do other historical time periods, but basically all of the above, I would say. Um, the histor- there's As far as historical evidence for the Norse gods, there's nothing really set in stone, uh, but based on you know, just the, you know, what we can guess, um, you know, probably, you know, who knows, human sacrifice could have been involved, um, much like, you know, modern day paganism, um, you know, people would have um, built shrines to the gods and worshipped at sort of altars, you know, uh, because we have found uh, small statues of the gods, um, you know, great bonfires, and, and as I said, sacrifices, human sacrifices, animal sacrifices, uh, those things would have, those are all very likely. So I think, um, you know, there's not really a, a set in stone answer to that question simply because we don't really know uh, how the Vikings worshipped their gods, but I think that those things, sacrifices, altars, um, you know, I would say, dare I use the word praying to, I don't know, but but worshipping um, at altars and, and through sacrifices, I would say, would be the main two. So a, a veneration process, then? then yes, you can go yes, with that. exactly. Okay. Um, what, what sort of time period are we looking at here? When When is uh, this at its height, and when does it start to uh, die out uh, and cease to be practiced uh, and how does how does that come about is it purely the case that the christianization process reaches these people or is there more to it than that so uh so the viking age uh, started around 793 to get technical with the dates and ended around 1066 uh lasting about 300 years however uh although that is kind of seen as the height of obviously the Vikings, but also Norse mythology, um, because that is when uh, the pagans really came in contact with other religions, namely Christianity throughout Europe. Um, the Norse gods uh, would have been worshipped uh, hundreds and hundreds of years before that, uh, going right up to the uh, 5th century AD and even probably before that. Um, we don't really know for sure, though, again, because Greek and Roman explorers never made it that far north. Um, so that's about the time period that we're looking at. And as far as uh, Norse paganism coming to an end, um, Christianity was indeed a big part of it. But then again, we have to think how how much of it was Christianity, because um, throughout the Middle Ages, you know, Christianity was, especially in the beginning, was very much the religion of the upper class. Um, you know, um, I don't really know how many of the, the wealthy medieval aristocracy actually in their hearts believed in God, uh, at first so much as it was the newest, the newest kind of social club to be a part of, um, the royalty everywhere, uh, was subscribing to this, this religion, Christianity, this new religion. Um, so I think, I think it's kind of twofold. I think that number one, it was Christianity that kind of brought it to a close, but also, as time went on and it became later and later in the Middle Ages, kind of marking the end of the Viking Age, you started to see um, kingdoms getting larger, eventually beginning to shape modern-day countries. So 
um, instead of, you know, just war bands and, and tribes of Vikings with, you know, chieftains, they started to become more of kingdoms with professional armies and, and you know, massive fleets of ships and, and everything else and, and militias. Um, so with those kingdoms comes the responsibility to, to embrace Christianity uh, by the leadership. So I suppose that it would be the... Um, I guess you would say uh, expansion of of the Scandinavian kingdoms, and that they were becoming larger and larger, shaping modern day countries, uh, paired with the the spread of Christianity. I'm thinking thinking about this idea of expansion, but but just going the other way. What what kind of spread do we find for um, the Norse? myths and the Norse beliefs how does the in in its height how does that propagate out from from its home to other countries or to other geographical areas you know that's a really interesting question I think um I think that Norse paganism unlike Christianity was very much cent- centered in solely Scandinavia um even nearby um, regions such as you know the Celtic nations and even uh, Finland, uh, their mythologies were similar in a way, um, you know, very culturally similar. But in a way, their mythologies were also vastly different, just in terms of characters and, and power struggles, as as we mentioned earlier. So um, I don't really think Norse mythology made it that far. Um, but and this is just kind of an interesting fun fact to add. Uh, one thing that people fail to realize about the Vikings is that uh, they themselves uh, did not solely stay in Scandinavia. They had a massive trading network that uh, you know, went all over the entire world, especially to the Middle East. And um, you know, we have found crosses in Scandinavia uh, from the Viking Age, uh, as well as recently in Sweden. Uh, somebody actually found, I think it was golden, made of gold, a golden Buddha statue um, from what would have been uh, Persia. So um, the Vikings, you know, were traveling abroad and um, to all these different places with all these different religions. But as far as they themselves exporting their religion to other places, I don't know if that was as common. So we we find little in the archaeological record, would you say, um, to to be able to tell us very much for definite about um the beliefs and practices that were going on at this time yeah yeah definitely as far as the historical evidence uh for the worship of the norse gods it's extremely limited unfortunately so in that case has that led to um a very kind of ambiguous understanding of what was going on are, are there a lot of misconceptions about the beliefs and practices for example yeah, it's it's interesting because, you know, although we don't have a, a great deal of sources explaining what the myths were themselves as far as the poetry and the stories, we have enough to get a, a, a you know, a pretty in-depth uh, consensus of, of what the stories, the myths were, who the main characters were. We just don't know how they were, how that religion was practiced. It'd be like, you know... That's a bad example. I was going to say it'd be like, you know, having a bunch of Bibles lying around, but but not knowing how to to worship Jesus and to worship God, um, if, if that makes sense. 
You know, so it's really interesting um, in that we have a great understanding of the actual stories and poems. We don't actually have a good understanding of how those poems were executed in everyday life. So um, compare what we see and what we read now with the primary sources that you referred to earlier on, the prose edda and the poetic edda, for example. Um what do we see that's similar and what do we see that's different? So if you look at the modern popular culture representations, uh, are they very different to those primary sources or are they quite similar? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. I think that um, I think there's a lot of wishful thinking uh, going on about modern perceptions of Norse mythology uh, as well as the Vikings as well. In that, uh, just, uh, you know, while, while people don't say it out loud, just the way that Vikings are oftentimes represented uh, makes them seem like, you know, these barbaric people who, who couldn't read or write, which, granted, they didn't leave behind much writing at all. Uh, you know, blood-stained tunics with unkept hair. They were just utter uncivilized barbarians who were all about, you know, women and, and mead and, and bloodshed and war, which that's that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, there's many misconceptions surrounding uh, the Vikings, but with that comes many conceptions about Norse mythology in that, um, you know, sort of one of the biggest elements of Norse mythology that people like to get very excited about is this idea of Valhalla, uh, which is the hall of the slain uh, in Norse mythology. Um, Odin's hall, where his elite warriors, um, the elite warriors of men who die in battle, uh, go after they die uh, to train every day uh, and fight. And when they die in battle, they're resurrected to life. And then they have a feast with, you know, um, plenty of pork and, and mead and then they you know go to sleep and battle the next day um you know there's just people don't really bother to get in depth uh they fail to realize that there was actually you know about a dozen halls that that the, the slain in battle would go to um you know thor had his hall the the war god tyr had his hall uh it wasn't just odin so i think the biggest misconceptions are that people just they fail to go in depth and it's just kind of this overbearing generalization of the Vikings being exceptionally violent and kind of stupid in a way, you know, these brutish warriors. Yeah, and I guess that all um, all uh, characters suffer from some kind of stereotyping over time, don't they? Particularly if there's not a lot of, of really strong evidence to prove things one way or the other. So so take the opportunity to, to paint a better picture then and set the record straight. What were these people like? Yeah, so, you know, there's many misconceptions about the Vikings. Um, as I mentioned, you know, uh, when somebody thinks of the word Viking, you think of this unkept warrior with, you know, un you know unbrushed, greasy hair, um, bloodstained tunics, um, when in fact the Vikings were actually a very clean people. Uh, we found dozens and dozens and dozens of uh, combs used to brush hair uh, in various archaeological excavations that have been done. Uh, in the Scandinavian language, the word for Saturday uh, actually means bathing day. So we know that the Vikings washed 
And uh, I had a man by the name of Anders Winroth on my podcast um, earlier this year. Uh, he's a professor of medieval history at Yale University. And I really should check with him and get this source, but he was saying that there is actually a medieval English source uh, that describes when the Vikings were coming to England, and it says something like, the Vikings come to England and, and they smell really good, and, you know, our English women want to go run away with Vikings. So if that right there, you know, shows that they were a very clean people. Um, they were clearly very intelligent as far as their, you know, there's so much more to the Vikings than... Uh, military conquest. I mean, the exploration uh, that was done by them. They discovered Iceland, Greenland, and the first Europeans to discover North America. They had excellent, um, you know, uh, shipbuilding techniques. Um, the hulls of their ships were designed in a way that could, you know, uh, it, go across the the open Atlantic Sea, but also, you know, go down shallow rivers and, and right up to the beachheads. Uh, they had, you know, massive trading networks, as I mentioned. We found uh, silk from uh, the Byzantine Empire, uh, the Buddha statue. We found, uh, you know, ivory, um, just everything, you know, from all over the world. So it goes to show you that the Vikings were very intelligent as they had kind of this um, – not really empire, but they had this trade enterprise and they also explored. So that's what I would say the main misconceptions are. So what what remains with us now of these Norse mythologies and beliefs? What traces do we still find in our own modern day beliefs or practices that, that come from these Norse roots? Yeah, so... As far as, as that's concerned, you know, um, the language of the Vikings that, of course, um, all of these uh, myths would have been spoken in uh, Old Norse, um, you know, the language itself has great influence over our language today. We borrow many words from that. Um, and going along with that, uh, the days of the week, actually, we get from uh, the Norse gods. So, um, you know... Um, Wednesday uh, comes from Woden, that's, um, or, or Odin's day, that's another name for Odin is Woten. Um, you know, Thursday, uh, Thor's day, um, Friday, Frigg's day, that's the wife of Odin, and Tuesday, Tears day, uh, Tears the god of war. So I suppose that's probably the most common. But as far as what do we see these Norse myths in our culture, you know, I don't really know. I think that, the, you know, I just think they're they're timeless myths, and I love that they're being rediscovered. Uh, and because they're so timeless, um, you know, it's kind of like this great awakening or resurgence, as, as you mentioned. But that's not new to uh, the 21st century. We've seen that in history time and time again. You know, the Viking or the Victorians were fascinated with Norse mythology and the Vikings. Um, they had you know series of operas um, that. That's actually where we get the horned helmets from, uh, which the Vikings, of course, didn't wear horned helmets, were from the Victorians. And and uh, in the, I believe it, yes, in the 18th century, when the Scandinavians were kind of looking for a sense of uh, identity, national identity, they turned back to the myths, and we get a few interesting theories from that. So there's always been this resurgence uh, of, of Viking popularity in, in Norse myth. And I was talking with a, a Viking scholar, uh, Roderick Dale, uh, the other day from University of Nottingham, and he was saying that 
he believes that every time there is a resurgence in the popularity of uh, Norse history, it always gets greater and greater and greater. So we're living in a time now when Vikings are more popular than ever and Norse mythology is more popular than ever. And I think that's really cool. And, you know, those stereotypes that we talked about before are, you know, very, very difficult to break down. But I think that uh, doing things like we're doing today and helping to educate people on the true historical significance um, is, is really cool and, and really important. Okay, so if people do want to look into this further and find find out these um, more accurate things for themselves and, and to look at these mythologies, um, where would you point them in terms of further reading or, or other places? So I think that... Um, the the first two places that you should go to are the two primary sources that we have, uh, the Prose Edda by Snorri Sturluson and the Poetic Edda. You can find those books; they're very common. You can find them on Amazon for like you know ten U.S. dollars. Um, you can find them probably in in your local bookstore. Uh, so I would read those two primary sources. Uh, they're not difficult to read at all. Um, a lot of the other mythology books out there, the Kalevala, that's the Finnish mythology, those tend to be very difficult, whereas Norse mythology is written in contemporary English uh, for the most part. Uh, I also recommend, um, there's a great YouTube channel out there, uh, it's called Dr. Jackson Crawford's YouTube channel, you just search Dr. Jackson Crawford, and he's a Old Norse specialist at the University of Colorado Boulder, and he goes in depth uh, to these myths from the original sources, and he's actually written a, uh, his own translation of the Poetic Edda. So I, I would definitely be sure to check out Dr. Jackson Crawford's YouTube channel as well. Excellent. And very finally, um, where can people find your podcast easily, and, and who can they expect to hear, and what subjects have you covered so far on that one? Yeah, so you can find my podcast, The History of Vikings, uh, wherever you get your podcasts uh, from, or you can go to my website. It's just thehistoryofvikings.com. And uh, I've had all sorts of exciting guests on my show before, um, you know, as I, I talked about those earlier. And I'll continue to bring uh, exciting people on my show. Uh, you can expect um, more medieval historians from various um, prestigious universities. You can uh, expect, you know, more Old Norse specialists, uh, Norse mythology specialists. Um, occasionally I'll bring on um, novelists who have written historically accurate uh, Viking novels that gives a more contemporary perspective. Um, and yeah, so that's where you can find me on my podcast. Excellent. Brilliant. Noah, thank you so much for coming on to the Folklore Podcast and talking about your research and this very, very interesting area of folklore. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My thanks to Noah for taking the time to discuss this subject with me. Do make sure to head over to his website and check out the History of Vikings podcast if you want to learn more. It really does have some excellent guests. I'll be presenting some more of my own research and writing on the Folklore podcast very soon, and there are more great interviews lined up here too. If you'd like to hear about a particular subject or suggest a guest, do email me on thefolklorepodcast at gmail.com or message our social media. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Folklore Podcast is written and presented by me, Mark Norman. To find out more about my research and writing, visit www.facebook.com slash marknormanfolklore 
or on Twitter with the handle at Mr. Underscore Mark Underscore Norman. Research assistance is provided by Tracy Norman. Visit her website at www.tracynormanswitch.com to follow her historical research and projects. The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to and tries to avoid annoying advertising or sponsorship messages, but it cannot sustain itself. We are grateful for the support of all of our patrons who, for as little as $1 a month, earn themselves great rewards whilst ensuring our future. For more details, please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot support us in this way, please share the episodes on your social media and leave positive reviews. This really helps the audience for the podcast to grow. Visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com for more episode and guest information, to buy from the web store, or to sign up for free newsletters or get in touch. The Folklore Podcast theme music was written and performed by Gurdy Bird. Thanks for listening. <laughs>